Today on Basic, Ben Stiller. I remember when, you know, when MTV hit, I did audition to be a VJ. You could do yeah. anything you want as long as you <laughs> produce videos. I was so uncomfortable. I remember it because it went so badly. I felt like I was doing an imitation and just not getting it, just not doing well with it. But that's what I remember is just the feeling I had walking away that I'm like, I'm never going to be a VJ. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV exec, and while you can't see it, I can do a great blue steel. He really can. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I firmly believe the establishment owes me a Snickers. <laughs> Our guest today is Ben Stiller, who spent some of his very earliest days in showbiz at MTV. We'll talk about that. And then he launched a early version of his short-lived Emmy Award-winning sketch show, The Ben Stiller Show, right there at MTV. And later on, he even made a seminal movie based on his time at MTV. That's right. Reality Bites, among many other things, is in a lot of ways a satire of what MTV was at the time. And... Man, I love that movie. I was so excited to get to talk to him about it. And of course, you probably know that he recently directed the Emmy-nominated Severance for Apple TV+, Plus, which is just a fantastic, fantastic show. We will definitely be talking with him about that as well. So stay around after our chat with Ben to see if Jen and I were successful in getting some Severance info for season two, or at the very least, figuring out who our Audis are. All right. How's it going? It's going great, Ben. Thank you yeah. very much. Welcome to Basic. So happy to have you here today. Thanks, Dave. We always start off with asking everybody who comes on the show, do you remember when you first got cable television? Oh, wow. Right when you said that, I was just flashing on the image of a Manhattan cable box <laughs> on top of our TV. Searching for Robin Bird? Oh, yeah. Well, that, that <laughs> happened soon after, for sure. And finding, finding her and all those other crazy Channel J shows. No, the box. I remember the box, the wood paneling on the box, the gray knob, the dial on and off switch and yeah probably around the same time that pong came into our household <laughs> sometimes i'd watch my parents on tv because they were doing game shows a lot they were doing game shows like ten thousand dollar pyramid or hollywood squares or tattletales and things like that so sometimes you just you know like come home and watch my parents on tv because you know that's where they were that's what was on <laughs> <laughs> exactly and i touched the screen and try to connect no. <laughs> did you ever audition for mtv's remote control do you remember that yeah i feel like i did i feel like you did too i feel like i did and i i'm pretty sure i did and and blocked it out. I, I did. I, yeah, I did audition. So the it. way I remember is you did. And I think we liked you. And I think I called your agent or manager who said, oh, he's going to do House of Blue Leaves on Broadway. Oh, really? And, uh, okay. yeah. I was like, oh, okay, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Now that I think about it, I think I, I remember being in the running for it and being excited about it. That's a very exciting time because it was everything was you know new and the idea of getting work was such a big deal. At that point, I'd been auditioning for a, a number of years. You know, I, I did. I'm sure you might or might not remember this that I did audition to be a VJ. That I, okay. So that, oh, wow. uh, that, now that, that you say that, I'm reminded. Yeah, that How did, did that not, go? Not so well. Did what was the audition process? Well. It was me standing on the set. And introducing, I think it was an Eric Clapton song. I remember it because it went so badly. I remember walking away feeling just like, just awful that I just sucked. I was just not, I was so uncomfortable, but I had to read off a teleprompter and introduce the Eric Clapton song, Pretending. That's when I knew she was pretending, remember that song? Yeah. And uh, I remember when MTV hit 
and watching that at home and JJ Jackson and Adam Goodman. And they were so cool. And, you know, they were all just like you, Martha Quinn, like they were huge stars. And so to try to do that, I felt like I was doing an imitation of trying to be Adam Goodman and just not getting it. So that's what I remember is just the feeling I had walking away that I'm like, I'm never going to be a DJ. <laughs> I feel like it turned out okay. It all turned out okay. But, you know, you remember those. It's funny. You just remember those those auditions that don't go well. You know? There's a parallel universe, Bang, where your career ended after Live Aid. <laughs> Yeah. It must have been probably not long, maybe after this audition that you were hired at SNL to be a writer. And I believe you, you were only there for like four episodes. And from what I've read, part of the reason was you really wanted to make short films for SNL. And it seemed like that might not be as much of an opportunity there. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I mean, it actually was directly related to MTV because uh, Jeff Kahn, my roommate and partner in comedy, we were doing this comedy act together. I never did stand up per se, but Jeff and I met in LA in 1988 and he was friends with John Cusack and I knew John Cusack and we were all staying at his house actually. I remember on Outpost Boulevard in LA, he, John was shooting Say Anything and we were like, all these people were crashing at his house. And I met Jeff and Jeff and I hit it off and he was living in Chicago at the time. I'd gone to Chicago to do a movie and Jeff and I made a short film together. So anyway, we moved into an apartment in New York City and we started doing comedy at the China Club on Broadway once a week and doing characters. And from that, at the same time, I made this short film that got on Saturday Night Live and they offered me an apprentice writer and a featured player. But I really wanted to make the short films. And at the time, MTV was doing this thing called It's Your Hour. They would give somebody an hour and they could kind of do their thing, but still have to introduce videos. Yeah, you, everything was, and you have to introduce videos. You could do yeah. anything you want as long as you introduce <laughs> videos. And It's Your Hour was like, they'll give you, I think it was something like $10,000 or like $20,000, which was not a lot, but like it seemed to, like a lot to us. And so Jeff and I did a bunch of sketches. So we had done that. And from that, somebody... I don't know if it was you, Doug, who said, oh, this could be something you guys want to develop a show, a sketch show, where as long as you show videos, you can do sketches. That's what we did. And so it came out of that. And that's why I left SNL was because I thought, OK, I can do this and it'll be more controlled. I don't have to worry about live performing, which kind of scared me. And so that's what I did. So let's talk about the MTV version of the Ben Stiller show, which I believe was part of MTV's great VidCom experiment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, I think that sort of came out of the it's your hour for us. All I remember is that at that time, I had been doing this idea of a character that I seemed to think was funny of like this self-involved guy who was like wanted to star in his own show. The audition tape I made for SNL was me being this guy, Ben Stiller, who was like trying to get his parents to help him get into show business. And like, I was telling my mom to like make calls and somehow, you know, use her connections to help get me a shot. And like, so like this sort of like, you know, very, very uh, egotistical guy. And that was the idea for the character and the Ben Stiller show that I somehow pitched to you. I don't know. Probably me and Lauren Correo back in those days. Yeah. And it was like, hey, the Ben Stiller show is about a guy named Ben Stiller who wants to do his own sketch show. And he's got this sidekick, Jeff Kahn, who always wants to get on the show more. But Ben is so self-involved. He's always trying to undercut Jeff. And we'll do sketches within the show that are about the show is about the show. Show within a show kind of concept, basically. Right. And right. then the show within the show is we also have to go to videos. So 15 <laughs> minutes of the show was sketches and 15 minutes was videos. And the challenge was that 
we had to figure out how to thematically write the sketches around the videos. So we wanted to have some reason to go to a specific video. Right. So, you didn't want it to just be random and pop up. You wanted it to right. feel organic somehow. Exactly. That was really hard to do. I don't remember that, actually. Yeah, it was very challenging. And I remember we were always thinking about how to do it. Then we had some theme shows. One of the themes that we did was that the Fox Network was starting up. And I wanted to try to get on the Fox Network. So the whole show was doing parodies of Fox shows. Right. And then we had, at the time, Doogie Hauser was a popular show. I think that was supposed to be me, right? Doogie Herzog? That was Doogie Herzog, yeah, who was the head of the network. And we <laughs> casted like an 11-year-old kid that I'm sucking up to and trying to <laughs> get to, uh, you know, just like get, get in his good graces. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I mean, I remember watching your show and I related to it a lot. And I think partly because of what you're talking about, which is that it was so driven by these pop culture references, which now doesn't seem like anything. But I felt like that was very generational, at least from my standpoint, because you're not that much older than I am. It just felt it felt like it was a, a very generational voice to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably was the product of watching so much television also. Mm -hmm. And then also being at a point in my creative development where I'm still early on, like, you know, when you're starting out, you're trying to sort of emulate the things that you like. 
And so I, when I look back and I go, oh, we weren't that original because we really were trying to do what we saw on these other shows. But then it sort of evolved into its own thing. And, you know, I, I'm really happy that it exists. It's funny, like, I think people who are like comedy nerds do know the Ben Stiller show on Fox more, which was what came out of that. I feel like not as many people are even aware of the MTV show. So eventually, as you were alluding to, you transitioned from MTV to Fox. First of all, why did you leave MTV and was it Doug's fault? And second of all, what was it like going from like basic cable where, as you were saying, you had a lot of freedom? Was it different when you were at Fox? Well, it was a long process, actually. I mean, I'm curious, Doug, because from your point of view, and you can be honest now, like, I, I don't know what, like, how they were reacting to our show, but I don't think a lot of people were watching it. Yeah, you know, we did a bunch of them. There was yours, the white Julie Brown, the pop star did right. one. I'm trying to, maybe Quinn did one too. I can't remember. There were like five right. of them. We were running one every night. They were neither fish nor fowl because they were, you know, there was videos, but there were sketches or segments and they were all doing just okay. And right. of course we didn't have any money and right. you're a talented, ambitious guy and there were bigger things ahead. And we were, particularly in those days, I think MTV was a stepping stone for many, many, many people as it turned out. Right. Right. Yeah. I, that's what I suspected. I mean, it felt like we did, I think, maybe 13 of them or 12. Or a, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. If that. Right. But it was at the time, I just I don't remember feeling like, oh, it failed or anything. I just felt like, OK, we tried this and we had this opportunity. And at that time, you were so happy just to have the opportunity to do something. And then it did actually happen that Fox saw the episode where I was trying to get on the Fox network. And that was... <laughs> Yeah, they said, hey, do you want to actually <laughs> try to develop a show here? And that finally happened, and it took two-plus years to get it on the air. And then we finally got on the air, and we were, you know, put on Sunday nights at uh, 7 o'clock, opposite 60 Minutes. But you ultimately <laughs> also won an Emmy after getting canceled, right? Oh, yeah. Well, nobody watched us because we were on against 60 Minutes, and I don't think they even had an idea of how to promote the show. We did 13 episodes. They showed 12, and got canceled, and then nine months later, uh, we, we were nominated for an Emmy and actually won. I want to talk to you a little bit about Reality Bites, which I wanted this whole podcast to be about Reality Bites. Doug said that might be pushing it. <laughs> so I will show some restraint, but it is yeah. it is one of my favorite movies of all time. It meant a great deal to me. It came out when I was graduating from college and trying to get into journalism like Lelena's doing. So there were just a lot of touchstones for me there. But relevant to this discussion is that you played a character who worked at In Your Face TV, which was MTV with an edge. <laughs> and so there was a lot of stuff really skewering basic cable. Now, I know Helen Childress really wrote the script. I'm assuming a lot of that was already in there. But, you know, how much of that did you build upon when you were directing the movie? Well, yeah, Helen was writing about her life growing up in Houston. And I met her because Danny DeVito and Stacey Scher and Michael Schamberg were producing this movie and developing it with her. She was a writer that they had met and really believed in. And they had been developing it for a little bit. And then it was kind of around the time I was doing the Ben Stiller show. And we met and hit it off. And her story was different than my upbringing. But that character, Michael, I really could connect with because I'd had this MTV experience. I mean, were you pulling from present company, obviously excluded, executives there that you had met? Like, what was the inspiration specifically for Michael? No, I mean, I think it was more about the reality shows were starting to happen then at that point. There was this feeling of the commodification of the youth culture. And even like when we were making that movie, because the movie was not an independent movie, it was made by Universal Studios. And there was concern that 
somehow that was exploiting this pop culture thing that was happening at the time that was, you know, grunge was happening, which was very organic. And the movie Singles was made around the same time, you know, Cameron Crowe. And it was sort of like the cross-pollinization of art and commerce was happening mm-hmm. in that world. It's been so interesting to me to watch how the response to Reality Bites has evolved over the years. And I feel like millennials are like, why doesn't she go with Michael? He's stable. He's nice to her. He has a paying job. Why is she going with Ethan Hawke? And I'm like, oh, interesting. I don't know yeah, if you picked up on that too. Well, I've, I've heard that debate over the years and I always felt like, all right, well, you know, Troy's like cooler and, you know, he's got the cigarettes and the hair and you know, he's, <laughs> he's Ethan Hawke. You know, so there was always that. And then Michael was sort of like, yeah, you know, I, what I liked about the movie was, and I think it came out of the process of Helen and I spending time together was that we were really trying to make a case for Michael. And I think maybe in the earlier drafts of the script, and this is something Helen, I'm, I'm sure, would remember more than I would, but, you know, that Michael wasn't as much of a choice for her, you know? And so we always felt like, okay, well, let's figure out a way to make this guy, you know, he's flawed and he's about something that's totally different, but he does have a case, you know, for what mm-hmm. the real world is about. That's something I think that we really spent time on trying to make that work in the movie. Right. All right, Doug, I'll let you talk about something else. (laughs) Well, before we leave the world of basic cable, we have to talk about some shorts you made for the VH1 Fashion Awards that then turned into a feature film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two feature films, right? Uh, Two. That's right. Yeah. So just tell us about the origin of Zoolander. (laughs) Oh, man. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> we were doing these shorts that Drake Sather, who is a stand-up comedian, incredibly funny, dark, subversive stand-up comedian, wrote, I guess, on assignment because it was the VH1 Fashion Awards. They said they wanted to do these little interstitial pieces on the different people in the fashion world, the male model, the photographer, the publicist. And Derek Zoolander was the character that Drake wrote. And he said, I want you to do it. And then I remember because I was shooting, I was shooting a movie and I had a goatee. And I also was just like, why do you want me to be a male model? It's ridiculous. He's like, yeah, it's ridiculous. That's why I want you to do it. And so we shot the short and then we did it the next year, I think, again. I guess the first time I didn't have the goatee, the second time I had the goatee. Anyway, it, it was, you know, right around the time that Mike Myers had made Austin Powers. And I was watching this movie about this sort of, you know, really broad character that worked as a whole movie. And I thought, oh, maybe we can do this as a feature. And... I actually went to Mike DeLuca, who was at New Line at the time. He said to me, oh, that Derek Zoolander character is really funny. You should do it as a movie. Oh, So I'll give Mike DeLuca, DeLuca. credit for that. Yeah. Then he said, but you can't do it here because Paramount owns the rights to it. It's because the VH1 Fashion Awards were Viacom, right? Right. So then we developed the script over a couple of years. And it was a long development process, actually, because we went through a lot of different drafts. At one point, I remember I didn't want to do it. And then they gave it to somebody else to do who wrote a script like somebody else rewrote it really and they were going to do it with somebody else yeah what? or they were going to try to do it with somebody else and i was like all right that's weird because we did the character <laughs> and then <laughs> that didn't work out but there is a script out there that was like a totally different script um and then finally we did it yeah i remember it was like kind of a tough shoot because nobody really understood the character or knew you know paramount uh, sherry lansing had the faith in in the character to, and to do it but nobody really knew if it was going to work 
And it was sort of like, okay, we're taking a big swing with this. <laughs> but I mean, you want to be out there taking risks and do something great and fun. And, and it's yeah. always great to see it work. Yeah. But I remember in the moment when we were doing it, there was a little bit of stress in terms of like the budget and stuff. And then we came out, of course, it was, you know, like 10 days or something, 12 days after 9-11. It was just an awful time. So the whole thing was like a little bit weird at the time. You know, in retrospect, I have really good memories of it. And, you know, the fact that like that character, I don't know, it's like, it's so crazy because now I think I, I could never imagine really like jumping in and saying, I'm going to do a character like that. But that's when you're at that point in your life, maybe I wasn't even that young. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I was younger. It holds up. It holds yeah. up great. And by the way, for those of you who can't see Ben right now, he's kind of been doing the blue steel thing the whole time, just, to, <laughs> just in case you're wondering. So. <laughs> Zoom steel. Zoom steel, yeah. Yeah. We're coming to a quick close. I know we want to just pick his brain as much as he'll tell us about Severance, which is what everybody wants to talk about. <laughs> First of all, Ben, congratulations. We are all huge fans here. We get on to talk pre-podcast and the discussion has been about Severance every week. We're all big fans. I know it's been a great thing in terms of the audience. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's really fun to have it out in the world after working on it in the sort of pandemic bubble that we were in for a couple of years with it. So, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people were making stuff during the pandemic and uh, it, it was challenging, but I really loved the idea from the beginning. And Dan Erickson, the writer, created this script and he's never had anything produced before. So it's really fun to watch people connect with it and see it through his eyes too, because it's his, it's his first project. Now, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's listening and maybe hasn't seen it yet, but... The first season finale is incredible. And it's my understanding that the idea to kind of cut it off where you cut it off was your idea. Is that right? That's what Dan has said. I guess yeah, that's, that's what true. I read. I know. I read that too. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh man. All right. Uh, <laughs> I know that I was always a proponent for slowing it down because there was a version where there were a lot more answers as to what was going on that came at the end of the first season. And I thought that it was such an intriguing concept that it would be more interesting to let it play out and let people live in the world of really wondering what things mean, as long as they all really do mean something. And I, you know, I I honestly, I never watched Lost. Oh my God. Not intentionally. I just, I don't, I, I, I'm this a, I watch, ridiculous. I, John hasn't um, seen it either. <laughs> I haven't seen it either. <laughs> I watched Breaking Bad. Okay. I watched Game of Thrones. Um, and, but I never, so I just, you know, and it's daunting to me when there's multiple seasons of a show that I haven't watched. Anyway, so I'm feeling all this lost trauma from people where people <laughs> like lay on us this like feeling of like, you better know what you're doing. You better have answers. And I get that because, you know, what you don't want to feel is that we're just out there putting red herrings out there and stuff doesn't mean anything. But I really did feel like there was a pace to the show that I wanted to see that I felt would be intriguing and interesting and would allow smaller events to mean more if you didn't have as many of them. And then at the end, answer a number of questions, but still leave some of the bigger questions unanswered. So there's somewhere to go in you know future seasons. Yeah. I mean, I actually wrote a whole piece about the finale and I always kind of balk when people have that, oh, Lost ruined it. Please don't do what Lost did reaction because First of all, to me, part of the fun is not knowing what's going to happen. 
like just living in that not knowing is so much fun to me. I love how, I mean this sincerely, I love how invested people get in the shows, you know, and how in the characters, and that means that they're taking it seriously. I love how much they're paying attention to every little detail. But I also feel like if you did answer every question for them, how would you feel if you answered everything? Right. You know what I mean? If we just said, hey, here's what it all means, you know, end of season one. I think you'd have to start from scratch again in season two. And, you know, I'm all for coming up with new ideas. And I hope season two is really, really different and interesting and still maintains some of the stuff that people are really love about the show. But yeah, at the end of the day, you have to keep some stuff back. And what I was concerned about with the, with the finale was that people would feel satisfied enough. And I'll tell you, I didn't know until really until the finale streamed how people would react because after episode eight, I started to see a lot of people going like, oh, the cliffhanger, that cliffhanger in episode eight. I can't believe it. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> Episode nine is coming. <laughs> so, so, so much pressure. Yeah. And I was thinking, and, and it was all, you know, nothing you can do about it. But like, I was like, okay, I hope that episode nine satisfies them enough. And it seems like for the most part, people who are fans of the show have really, really enjoyed the finale, which has been great. But it's fun. It's a whole new world for me. I'm not used to this kind of... So now you're, now you're moving into a second season, which is, you know, usually on a feature film, it's one and done, right? You move off to the next project. And now you're into the second season. Have you started writing it yet? Yeah, we've been working on it and we're, you know, we've been in our sort of version of the writer's room that we have on the show for a while. And, uh, you know, what's good, though, is that I felt like we didn't get to really finalizing the season until the show came out. And it's really been helpful because you really get to feel what the fans of the show are reacting to and what they're investing in. And I think that makes a difference in just like it, understanding it. We shot the whole first season like a movie. We did it cross-boarding where we do scenes from episode eight and scenes from episode four on the same day, sometimes because of locations. So you don't get a sense of all the episodes really when you shoot that way until the very end when you're editing them. So now that we've had a sense of how the story plays out and how people react to the story, to me, that helps inform what we lean into in the second season. Has that altered your plans in any significant way? Or well, I mean, I think it has in that I just, I, you know, I'd hope that people would pay attention to the details on the show. I had no idea they would pay attention on the level that they pay attention, <laughs> you know, and how they invest certain things. And I, I won't lie, sometimes people will invest in something or give meaning to something that might not necessarily have had uh, a specific meaning. I feel like there's a lot of stuff in there that really does. And we thought about that, but then they'll lean into something specifically and we'll be like, oh, that's actually interesting because that could relate to something that we didn't think about that we could then play off of. So it actually does affect it in that way. I think that's good though. And, and ultimately, you know, Dan is in his head and he has a very unique way of thinking about things. And it's been a really fun process to go through it with him and to see how it's developed. And I'm, I'm excited. I, I had not thought about a second season, even when we we're doing the first season, I knew that we needed to have one, but now like we're really getting into it and, it's fun because it's fun to know that people will be waiting to see it. You know, <laughs> it's like a fun when you make stuff, you know, you make a movie, you hope that people are going to want to go see it. But that, to have that feeling of like, they're waiting for me, they're waiting for yeah, us. Right. Waiting for and that, that's really inspiring yeah. because yeah. it makes you want to do your best work and you know that somebody's going to be there on the other end, really, really looking at it. And really, you know, it's both both pressure and also exciting. too. Well, I, I for one, can't wait to see it. And with all due respect, please hurry up. <laughs> I, 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 I just don't know how long I can. I know. <laughs>
Okay. Ben Stiller, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. It was great to see you. Congratulations on Severance. We're all big fans, as is the rest of the world, apparently. And we can't wait to see what's next. Thanks, man. It's great to talk to you, Doug. Really, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> really fun talking to you. I'm glad that I remembered enough. I feel you like did very only, well. You, you remembered a lot. Be. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, and I will think of my favorite basic cable we, show. We, and I'll, yeah, know. we transported you. Barely. Doug, you have a good radio voice. That's why I went got back to radio. I got, a face for, I got a face for radio. <laughs> I started out in college radio and I was like, I should... I should probably go back to that. Maybe yeah. they'll have me. So you know, this is what I all did. unemployed white guys do now, Ben. It's, You'll I, be there one day, I promise <laughs> you. Even you. We'll no, be to this it's good, day. though. It sounds good. You know, I did a radio show in uh, UCLA when I was there for five minutes, like at 2 a.m. on the cable radio station at UCLA. And I don't know if you'll ever recall this, but when you did the Colin Quinn thing, you shot it in my boss's office on a Saturday afternoon where you were doing your Gruber character. Right, right. It was supposed right, to be right. the agent's office. Yep. And my boss, I don't know why, had these giant blown up eight by tens of all the people that worked for him behind his desk. <laughs> so it was just, it was like the, I don't know what he was doing. It looked like a news team, but you're sitting at the desk and behind you is a picture of me. And, and, and you, you basically tell him it's all your clients. And he goes, well, who's that guy? And you go, oh, that guy, uh, Judge Reinhold with an attitude. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> which, which they still, to this day, that's how I refer to Judge Reinhold with an attitude. In my research, I also watched part of your Miami Vice episode. Oh. Um, which it was weird to me that you play Fast Eddie in that. And then I'm watching this Color of Money parody. Like, what's up right. with that? I know. I know. That is weird. Wait, you did um, Miami Vice? I did an episode of Miami Vice. That was, no, it was like probably like 1986 or something like that. I mean, that was a big deal for a New York actor to get a Miami Vice episode. Bonnie Timmerman was the casting director and I, it was very exciting. That was very the show. Exciting. Yeah. Brian oh, Dennehy yeah. was in it also as a sleazy evangelist. That's right. He was the main, he was the actual guest star. And who could forget the late, great Glenn Fry? And where are you before we go? Are you in the city? I am. Yeah. Uh, got it. Well, Ben, uh, thank you again. You were so sweet. Yeah, man. I, so I, much I, fun. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank great, you so much, great, great to see you, man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's great to uh, see you. Be good. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. So that was pretty cool. Ben Stiller joining us. Early days in cable. Went on to be a big movie star and director. And now sitting atop the TV world with 14 Emmy nominations coming up for Severance. Yeah, I mean, that show, as we talked about, is just remarkable at all levels, and that's why it got so many Emmy nominations. Ben directed most of the episodes, but it's also getting nominations for just all levels of craftsmanship, the acting, the editing. It's just, man, it's just incredibly well done. And I just think that any kind of original story right now is just so refreshing, especially if it's really well done. It's not a reboot. It's not a sequel. It's something you just haven't seen. Yeah, people seem really excited about it. Real strong fan base being developed around what could happen and what might happen in season two. But uh, I guess we'll have to wait to find out. But you also got a chance, Jen, to talk to Ben about, I think, one of your favorite movies, right? Reality Bites is one of my favorite movies. It's very personal to me. You haven't written a book about it, but it's one of your favorite movies. I should write a book about it. I don't know if anyone would read it, but I should write a book about it. Yeah, and I think that's a movie that was... It was dismissed a little bit at the time, you know, as sort of a simplified view of Gen X. And I can see that, but I don't know. I think that the time capsule nature of it to me is one of the things that I like so much. It's such a moment in time. And I also think it's really well directed and really beautifully photographed. I, I really urge people who dismiss that movie to go back and watch it again, because you might have a different viewpoint this time. I agree with you. And I think Ben talked about this a little bit. It was really a snapshot of Gen X and a pretty decent one. And also having worked at MTV all those years and watching Ben give his view of it, 
it was pretty spot on in a lot of ways. Yeah. Definitely worth a rewatch. Yes. I, I urge everyone to do that. I quote Reality Bites like seriously on a daily basis. Reality Bites, Severance, talked a little bit about MTV. Hope you enjoyed Ben Stiller. And uh, we look forward to having you next time on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow follow the show so you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.